I'd invite you to stand with me as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, talking about this. Who can this be? I aim to answer that question this morning. The text reads in Matthew 18, 23 through 27, Now when he got into a boat... His disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? May God bless the reading of the word today. Is my prayer you may be seated. I want to thank you for all being here this morning, and I'd like to encourage you to come out this evening. And while I am not preaching specifically on the topic of freedom... This morning, uh, Shiloh is, so I would encourage you to come back this evening. I know Shiloh will do a great job, and um, I, I tried to make up for it with uh, the red, white, and blue here, but um, the one thing I want to get across this morning is this, that when we encounter difficulties in life, we need to view them in light of who Jesus is. When we encounter difficulties in life, we need to view them in light of who Jesus is. So just by way of overview, the book of Matthew is all about Jesus being presented as king. He is King Jesus. His audience is Jewish, so he writes to proclaim to them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we see that very clearly. You see, in chapter 1, Matthew details that Jesus has the right lineage. You also see that Jesus has the right birth. Continuing through chapter 4, Matthew details in numerous ways that Jesus has all of the right credentials to be who he says he is. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Excuse me. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, they make a very emphatic note about the teaching of Christ, which is worthy of our consideration. It says this, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, the scribes in Jewish's day would quote other scribes to establish the authority of their teachings. And when Jesus taught, he did not do that. Rather, He sets his authority over all of them when he uses the phrase that you will see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said. And then shortly after it, after he explains what they have heard said, he says, but I say to you. And by doing that, he sets his authority over and above that of the scribes. So moving forward, it's almost as if Matthew answers the questions in chapter 8 and 9, or the question rather, What gives him the right to say these things? You see, in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority. 
Before we get to our passage in chapter 8, Jesus shows his power over disease by healing a man with leprosy. You see that there? You see that he heals a man who is paralyzed. Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with an intense fever, Jesus heals her as well. He also heals the demon-possessed. In verses 18 through 22 of chapter 8, he teaches on the demands of discipleship. And in our passage this morning, he shows his power over nature and his authority over nature. At the end of Matthew, the next passage in Matthew chapter 8, he demonstrates his power once again over the supernatural. So not only the natural, but the supernatural. So in the broader context of Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority. And in the nearer context, the emphasis is on the fact that the difficulties of life do not excuse us from following Jesus. You see that in 18 through 22, right? A man says to Jesus, Jesus, before I follow you, let me go back and first bury my father. Now, when it comes to Bible customs, we understand that this man's father was not actually dead at this time. This man was saying, before I follow you, let me go and receive my inheritance that I know is coming to me. So not only... Uh, does the difficulties of life not excuse us from following Jesus? Following Jesus does not exempt us from the difficulties of life. Those two things go together. Which is why I said when we started that when we encounter difficulties in life, we should view them in light of who Jesus is. We see that here in the passage so clearly. We see the prompting of Christ, starting in verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And I want us to note something here. Before Jesus had gotten into the boat, he had given a command. I want you to see that. He had given a command to the disciples to the disciples to depart to the other side of the sea. That is incredibly important. Verse 18 says this, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. So whenever storms or trials in life happen, some people tend to conclude that the reason these storms or the reason these trials is happening or are happening is that the person going through these things is out of the will of God and this trial is God's way of punishing them. Have you ever heard someone express that sentiment? Have you yourself ever thought that? Well, that is not always the case and this passage demonstrates that truth. Jesus commanded them to go to the other side. So the disciples were not out of the will of God by sailing into this storm. They were directly in the will of God. And the same is true for the storm they encounter in Matthew 14. Someone has once put it this way. In the Christian life, there are storms of correction. And there are also storms of perfection. Okay? There are storms of correction, and there are also storms of perfection. 
Now, a storm of correction would be the result of someone being out of God's will, and the classic example is Jonah, right? God comes to Jonah, tells Jonah to go and to preach to the city of Nineveh, and what does Jonah do? Jonah runs from the Lord and gets as far away from God as he can, and while he is on a ship sailing to Tarshish, right, we all know what happens. There is a great storm that had come, and no amount of rowing could get them out of the storm. And so the story goes with the great fish that follows him, or that swallows him, I'm sorry, and, and so on and so forth. The storm that we are looking at today is a storm of perfection, in that God allows this storm to happen so that the disciples would mature through learning to trust in Jesus. Okay? He allows it to happen so that the disciples would mature through learning to trust in Jesus. So following Christ does not exempt us from difficulty in life. And I love what our brother James puts in his epistle in chapter 1 and verse 2. And I don't have this verse. It's just a reference for me to back up what I'm saying um, before I say it. Um, It says, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, consider them joy. Right? He does not say, my brothers, if you encounter various trials. He says, when. It is only a matter of time. So we see the prompting of Christ. We also see the protection of Christ. Matthew 8 and 24 says this, And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. So what about this chaos? The storm is sudden. And just as the storm, sometimes difficulty in life are sudden as well. Have you ever encountered a difficulty in life that was unexpected, that seemed to be overwhelming? That can happen. It does happen. Well, due to the geography of the Sea of Galilee, this is somewhat common, these storms. Although this storm is peculiar, In its magnitude, the sea itself is around six to seven hundred feet below sea level, and that area is surrounded by hills. Um, And so these things together produce sort of a wind tunnel, which makes the sea prone to violent storms that can happen very quickly. And if you know anyone who's gone and visited the Sea of Galilee, they may have expressed that in their brief time on the sea, they encountered a storm. It is common. Not only was it sudden, the Bible says it was a great tempest. And the Greek word for tempest is seismos, which is very cool. Because that Greek word is where we get our English word seismic. And it means a great shaking. So it's almost like someone took the the sea and started to shake it. And this is no small storm, even for skilled sailors. Imagine that. Mark records this note in Mark <clears throat> chapter 4 and verse 37. The boat was covered with waves. You ever been out on the water and it starts to storm? I don't know about you, but I want to get out of there. Right? We can't get back to shore fast enough. 
It says covered with waves. It says the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Wow. So if the storm is so severe, then why is Jesus asleep? That's a good question. He is fully man, right? This passage puts on display the humanity of Christ and praise God for that. He was a man who experienced feelings of tiredness just as you and I do. So if he is fully man, how is he asleep? We know why he is asleep, because he is a man. How is he asleep in such a torrential storm? Because he is also fully God. Amen. So it not only shows the humanity of Jesus, but this passage also shows the deity of Jesus. And even though Jesus was asleep, I would submit to you that he is still in complete control of the situation. And in all of their activity, the disciples could not control the storm. They could not control the boat. And they could not even control themselves. But Jesus, who was sleeping, was in control of it all. Matthew continues. He says, Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. And so it seems evident from the text that if the disciples could have handled the issues on their own, then they would have. And one thing that I have learned this week, and I believe it's worthy of noting here, that there are some difficulties in life that no amount of skill or profession can handle. Whether severe storm or smooth sailing, we all need the help of God Almighty. But I want to call to our attention how exactly they ask him. Mark gives us a fuller picture. Mark 4 and 38 says this, But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Anyone ever been there? Overwhelmed by the circumstances of life that you ask yourself or even ask God himself, Do you not care? Well, it's interesting to consider why the disciples did not go to him sooner rather than later, or why sometimes others do not go to God sooner rather than later. It's possible that these men were prideful. <clears throat> As I mentioned, um, they were professional fishermen, but this storm was tough even for professionals. And... <clears throat> They may have wanted to handle this difficulty on their own because of that. And skill and profession can do that to an individual. And it can keep them from coming to Christ in their time of need. Lord, let it not be so. I should have known how to handle that myself, we could think. This could have even caused them to be angry. Because they could not handle it themselves, which could also explain why they approached Christ the way that they did. 
You ever try to handle something on your own that you could not handle on your own? And the result of that is that you get incredibly angry. And so by the time that you do go to God, you go to God in a way that you otherwise would not. It's possible that was, that was there. It's just an opinion. It's possible that shame plays a part in why some do not go to God sooner. If not for the disciples, then for others. People tend to have a way of deceiving themselves into thinking, well, if I was going to turn to Christ, I should have done that sooner. It is too late to turn to him now. And if you are here today, then it is not too late to turn to Christ. It's possible they were afraid of Christ and how he might handle the situation. They had never been in a storm like this and... They could have thought that it was their own fault, that they weren't out of it by now. Hmm. Someone posited the, the idea that maybe they were, you know, someone told Peter to go wake him up, and he said, I don't want to wake him up, you go wake him up. We don't, we don't know. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they obviously allowed themselves to believe that he did not care, which is the other side of the same coin. Isn't it the case that oftentimes we are upset with Christ in that he is not doing things the way that we wish he would do in our lives? We may believe that he's working, but if he's not working the way that we want him to, when he wants him to, then that can cause us to be upset with him. We need to be careful not to be deceived that Christ does not care at all simply because we do not understand the way in which Christ is working at any given moment. Jesus not only understands our situation, he cares. Jesus understands our situation better than we do, and he cares more than we do. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 say this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. We have a Savior who understands. We have a Savior who cares. And he is mighty to save. We see the power of Christ on display. Verse 26, but he said to them, why? <clears throat> why are you fearful? Oh, you a little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. He doesn't even answer the question, do you not care that we are perishing? But rather answers their question with the question, and what a question that is. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? I can't imagine being in that situation, number one, because I've never been in a situation like that. I can't imagine finally going to Christ asking for deliverance, and then when he does awake, he asks the question, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? When in the human mind, fear seems to be the only logical response. 
it is possible that they were probably more shocked that he was not as concerned as they were. Just imagine. However, his discontent with their lack of faith is still understandable since he had given them plenty of other reasons to trust in him through numerous miracles. And we outlined several of those in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he raises someone from the dead. He heals a blind man. He heals a mute man. But after all, they could ask themselves the question, what does a homeless rabbi carpenter know about sailing that they do not know? Hmm. Mark puts it this way in Mark 4 and 39. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Isn't it just like Jesus to do the one thing that we would never expect him to do? And to work out the situation that we can't see our way out of in a way that only he could work out. He commanded the winds and the sea. In other words, he had power and authority over all of creation. He told the winds and the sea, in essence, to be silent. Some translate that to say that he turned to the winds and the waves and said to them, hush. Wow. Instantaneously, miraculously, there was a great calm. And the New American Standard translates that <laughs> perfectly calm. Amen. So not only do we see the power of Christ, we see the preeminence of Christ. <clears throat> Verse 27 says this, So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? The men were astonished. They were amazed at Christ and his power and his authority over all of creation, which is reflected in the question, Who can this be? Well, Christ is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is preeminent. He is above and he is over all. Colossians puts it this way in chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Amen. That word consist is very interesting. It means to hold together. So Jesus doesn't just have the power to calm stormy seas or the power to calm storms in our life. He has the power to hold all of the universe together. Adrian Rogers put it this way. Jesus is the glue of the galaxies. Whew. I wish America would get back to their understanding of that. <clears throat> Mark's gospel puts it this way. And they feared exceedingly. So they feared the storm 
And after Jesus calmed the storm, he makes another note. And they feared exceedingly. Did you catch that? And said to one another, who can this be? That even the wind and the sea obey him. This fear spoken of here is a reverential awe. That they were absolutely astonished. Completely amazed. And I'll add this note. While they didn't respond correctly in the midst of the storm, they did respond correctly after the storm was over. You see, the disciples didn't know it all. They were still learning. They were still learning who to look to that day in the storms of life. And they would actually go on to forget to turn to Jesus for help when they encountered another storm crossing the same sea later in Jesus' ministry. You can read Matthew 14 for that. But we do not know it all either. We still have much to learn. And this forces us to ask the questions, who do we look to during the storms of life and what do we learn from them? You see, When we encounter difficulties in life, we need to view them in who light of Jesus is. Even more than physical deliverance from the storms of life, Jesus has the power to spiritually deliver us from the power of sin. These men had already realized that, which is why they referred to him as Lord. And if you do not know him as Lord, then that's one thing that you need to realize today. So even more than physical freedom, which I am thankful for, and I am thankful to live in a free country, I am also thankful for the reality that Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes you. The Bible says all. It is painfully clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. That is, we can be made right with God freely through his grace. That is not something we earn through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus died on the cross in our place, paying a debt for us that we could not pay ourselves. How do we accept This gift of salvation. The Bible uses these terms, repentance and faith, turning from sin and turning to Christ. Because there is salvation in none other, according to the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 12 and numerous other passages. But Romans 10 and verse 9 puts it this way, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is not a lip service. That is a genuine, broken spirit and a contrite heart over your sinful condition. And you fling yourself upon Christ and you ask him to save you and he will. So in conclusion, we come back to 
what we've gone through, but also where we started. Following Christ does not exempt us from the difficulties of life. And anyone in here who's been following Christ for even a short period of time can testify to that reality. But take heart. Because Jesus not only understands our situations, he cares. Amen. And not only does he understand, not only does he care, Jesus is in control even if we do not understand how. So when we encounter difficulties in life, we need to view them in light of who Jesus is. Who can this man be? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray, and I'll ask the musicians to come.